Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for being with us. In this first episode of our seventh series, New York's Attorney General Letitia James takes center stage as she sues the Trump Organization in an action that could cost $250 million. Meanwhile, Trump says he can declassify documents just by thinking about it. That's right, just by thinking. Meanwhile, his legal bills are rising and his options narrowing. But enough about him. Let's talk about the false and toxic election narratives that are being spread on social media in advance of the midterms. Further afield, the referenda on whether some regions of the Ukraine want to be annexed by Russia exposes some fault lines inside the U.S. This as the fighting goes on and gets more vicious. Alex Jones goes off again in court. Wait, what? Didn't we talk about this the other day? Well, let's get started. And we do also have the specter of right-wing populism rising in Europe. So, as I said, let's get started. I met Letitia James many, many moons ago when she was chief of staff to Assemblyman Roger Green in Brooklyn, New York. She ran for a New York City Council seat, lost, then ran again, and won. She has always had a reputation as a fighter and someone you don't mess with under any circumstances. She has since become the first black and first woman to be elected Attorney General of New York State. During her campaign, she made no bones about her intention to go after the Trump Organization for what she felt were fraudulent statements he made on loan applications. Trump, president at the time, seemed content to say her investigation was a witch hunt by a Democratic Attorney General. Fast forward to last week, and James filed a lawsuit seeking $250 million from the former guy and stop him from doing business in New York State. Combined with his other legal woes, it must be costing him a fortune in legal fees. His family says he's in a good position financially, and that could be true. But will it be true in the long term? At the end of the day, Tish James has become the burr in Donald Trump's saddle. And trust me, she's not going anywhere. Keep in mind, Trump tried to settle with her, in this case, to no avail. Now to the fun part of last week with Donald Trump. The other day, he told Sean Hannity he could declassify documents just by thinking about them. That statement automatically made him the butt of numerous jokes on late night TV. And yet, what would cause this man? the man who once held his finger on the nuclear trigger to make such a stunningly stupid statement. He's been making a lot of them lately, but I only have so long to do this podcast. You may remember last episode, I mentioned a Trump-appointed judge had temporarily stopped the FBI from probing the documents they seized from Mar-a-Lago. Well, that actually didn't last too long. An appellate court stopped the blockage, as well as the fact that his lawyers resisted providing any evidence that he, in fact, declassified documents with his mind or otherwise. Oh, and I almost forgot, Trump is still facing lawsuits from a number of people who blame him for the January 6th insurrection. Makes me wonder if he paid off the contractors in Jersey who sued him way back in the day because they didn't get paid. That's a bit off topic. But taking a look at what his lawyers are doing, in essence, they are making arguments about the declassification of documents without actually providing evidence. Now, I have to tell you, that is deep. 
You make allegations, you make representations, but you don't actually provide any evidence to buttress your claims. The lawyers are walking on a thin line because, as we pointed out before, any false statements they make to a court could cost them their living. They may love Donald Trump, but not quite that much. They also have to deal with the reality that his claims could be true, but they wouldn't get him out of legal jeopardy. His legal team may not be out of the woods no matter what happens. They're being investigated as to whether their claims that all sensitive documents were returned to the government before the raid is true or not. And the hits just keep on coming. You know, I'm about sick and tired of the term social media. Now, this is just me. I know everybody uses it. I know how uh, popular and ubiquitous social media actually is. And there certainly is much good that comes from it. The gatekeepers, however, are not spending a great deal of time separating fact from fiction. Nowhere is this more obvious than in politics. Social media has been used to spread rumors, half-truths, and outright falsehoods to the detriment of many. An article in the New York Times says the disinformation falls into three broad categories, election fraud, calls to action, and hot-button issues. The number of tweets, comments, etc. on social media about these topics is both astonishing and frightening. The Times piece seems to imply that social media has become an echo chamber where this stuff is disseminated and spread. There's one thread that calls for people to monitor polling places during the midterm elections. Another badmouths and threatens, in some cases, the FBI. And a third lies about who won the 2020 election, so what else is new? On a certain level, it's hard for me to take this stuff seriously. Yet, so many people do. People who you think might otherwise believe are, you know, like normal? You may ask whether it makes sense to try to reason with these folks, to try to change their minds. I, for one, don't think so. These beliefs are baked into their minds. They become part of their DNA. And they have allegedly respected people backing their ideas. The notion that people who speak up for transgender rights are grooming children is the lowest of the low. Yet members of Congress say it and it becomes believable and believed. Facebook and Instagram accepted nearly $25,000 worth of ads promoting this crap and they were served up to users more than 2 million times. Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, took some of the ads down, but obviously the damage had been done. For me, the way to deal with this is simple. I only use social media for certain purposes like communicating with friends, in some cases people I haven't talked to in years. For rational discourse on issues of our time, I look elsewhere. The threat to American democracy, the democracy that allows people to advocate unpopular positions must be protected from those who push falsehoods, whatever the reason is. Up next, the fighting rages on in Ukraine, even as the Russians hold referenda in the East on returning those lands to them. But there's a little dirty little secret the media in the West doesn't talk about. I'll tell you about it in a minute. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley.
Welcome back to The Intersection. We've said before that the war between Russia and Ukraine is protracted and now increasingly bloody. Vladimir Putin has called out 300,000 reservists to fight, and that's led to widespread protests across the country. The Ukrainians have made some dramatic gains in the northeast of the country. But in the south, the fighting is bloody and continuous. Meanwhile, the Russian-held parts of the country are holding a series of referenda to determine if those areas want to become part of Russia. Western media have followed a familiar and similar line on this. So similar, in fact, that you can go from channel to channel and you keep hearing the same things repeated over and over. They called the balloting so-called. They call it a sham. They call it propaganda, with the results a foregone conclusion. Now, all this may be true. I'm not discounting it for a moment. It could well be that it's a sham, it's propaganda, all that. But, and this is the thing that is important, there's a risk in making this an official media line, which, by the way, it has, has become. You see, America has just gone through election denial itself. Maybe some of it fomented by the Russians. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but it's possible. I don't know because I'm not Russian and I have no empirical evidence that they were involved in this. But there are people here in the United States, the good old USA, who say if their candidate loses in the midterm elections, that election was somehow crooked, a sham. You get my drift. The Russians can say to the world community that their referenda are no less a sham than the 2020 U.S. election. People who don't know and who don't know better will think that they are equivalent. And remember, the rest of the world does not always see things that are going on, including the Russia-Ukraine war, the way the West does. The West has a set line on this. And again, I'm not denying that their set line is true, in whole or in part. But we too often in the West do not pay proper attention to how the rest of the world sees things. We may say, oh, well, the Chinese this, or oh, well, the Indians that, or oh, well, some other group this, that, and the other. But the plain fact of the matter is, we are going to have to get better at being a truly global force. Otherwise, Things that we say here, oh, the election was running. The Russians are going to just grab that and throw it right back in our faces and say, how can the United States talk about election fraud in Russia or in annexed parts of the Ukraine when people in the United States are talking about election fraud themselves? Now, Russians are very good at spreading divisiveness among even like-minded people. A recent article in the New York Times, though disputed by some, argues that the Russians targeted activist Linda Sarsour and her participation in the 2017 Women's March. You may remember how that turned out. All this is to say, while a Russian referenda may be totally bogus, America has some skeleton, skeletons in its closet that may come back to haunt. We have a familiar ring to our, our next story. Alex Jones goes off once again in a courtroom. Another day, another rant. This is The Intersection. 
Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Say this for Alex Jones. He knows how to rant and he knows how to make money by making stories up out of whole cloth. That's what he did with the ugliness of the Sandy Hook Massacre, which, by the way, is now 10 years old. He took the feelings of the victims and their families and ripped them to shreds with his ravings about a false flag operation. He's back in court, fresh off being ordered to pay $45 million in Texas. Now he's in a Connecticut court, having already lost there once. The issue at hand is how much he'll have to pay there. After a brief period of acting normal, Jones began his trip off the deep end by plugging the address of a website accepting cryptocurrency contributions for his defense. That's right, cryptocurrency contributions for his defense. Yet the worst was yet to come. When the attorney for the victim's families pointed out that some were in the courtroom, Jones lashed out, quote, I've already said I'm sorry hundreds of times, and I'm done saying I'm sorry, end quote. Nice. That this man still has any media presence whatsoever is amazing to me. That a person can become a millionaire by peddling nonsense and so-called wellness products boggles the mind. Yet here he is, and no matter how much the families are awarded, Jones will not be broke. His persona is so entitled, it personally makes me sick. Still, you can't say there's only one Alex Jones out there. There are peddlers of deceit and ridiculous claims all over media, large and small. And by the way, if you want to look at what they all have in common, they all try to make money. There's none of them, no matter what they talk about, the right wing this, this, that, the other. They all are in the game to make money. They should be comedic figures. They are not. They've perfected the art of the grift to the point where the consequences, consequences are worth the risk of being exposed and worth the risk of being ridiculed. We would be remiss if we did not pay close attention in the West and elsewhere for that matter to what's going on in Europe. Italy is about to elect its first woman prime minister. The first woman prime minister. That's important. Now, the fact that she is a right-wing ideologue, you could say a far-right ideologue, may be secondary. But this is the first far-right government elected in Italy since the days of, guess who, Benito Mussolini. And this woman, Giorgia Maloney, is talking anti-immigration, anti-LGBTQ, anti-everything that you would think, well, I shouldn't say progressive, but certainly thinking people would find repugnant. Yet she won the election in Italy. And she's going to, and by the way, one of the things that is making the West very, very afraid about this is the fact that the right-wing populism that's growing in Europe is not particularly friendly to the Ukrainian government or their side in the Russia-Ukrainian war. 
these folks are starting to ask questions about why are we spending so much money on Ukraine? Now, I'm not saying the Italians spend all that much money, but ideologically, the idea of an Italian government that turns around and says, you know what, maybe the Russians have a point. That has repercussions way beyond how much the Italians are contributing to the Ukrainian war effort. Also in Sweden, there has been a right-wing takeover of government or a virtual takeover of government. They were the second most popular party in the last elections in Sweden. Now, does this make for some sort of trend? We don't know yet, but it is something that bears watching. And of course, some of these folks are taking their cues from right-wing figures in the good old USA, the Steve Bannons of the world, uh, Dinesh D'Souza and the rest of these folks. Some of these foreign, I shouldn't say foreign, they're not foreign in their own country, but some of these folks that are espousing right-wing populism are taking their cues from Americans who are espousing the same things. It's no accident that Steve Bannon is a big fan of Georgia Maloney. Now, something, obviously, is driving this. Maybe it's several things. One is, in fact, some of the problems that come, the economic problems that come with prosecuting or supporting the Ukrainians in the Russia-Ukrainian war. It drives up energy prices, which in turn drives up inflation, etc., etc. But some of it is also based in a vicious, vicious strain of xenophobia, which is not, by the way, limited to just Italy. Remember, the United Kingdom wants to send so-called illegal immigrants to Rwanda, of all places. So this is not something that is in any way, shape, or form limited to one right-wing populist government. There are several across Europe, some of which, by the way, are not all that affected by immigration, but it's easy to use immigration, A, to promote a political agenda, and B, and this is true all over the world, to raise money to tell people that these folks are coming for your jobs, they're coming for your housing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And sad to say, it's starting to work. And what can progressives do? They can hold up a clean glass to a dirty glass, but it also, and I should say progressive movements, governments, etc., they have to argue for a right way to do things. They really do. That's the one way that you counter right-wing populism. And hopefully, it'll work. Before we end, the intersection team mourns the loss of the great Pharaoh Sanders, who passed last week at the age of 81. His artistry and dedication to his craft inspired many, many souls, including mine. Rest in peace, good brother. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.